All right, let's uh, pause and pray. Father, we take this moment of pause, even hesitation before we enter your word. Uh, Lord, even before I seem to speak <coughs> your truth from your word, we ask that you would be our teacher here, that you would illuminate the way as we examine these scriptures. You've already made known to us that your will is that we would grow in Christ's likeness. We do that by your word. And so we come to this moment and we just ask for full peace and confidence and assurance that that is what you're doing. And that if you don't do it, then there will be a mess. There won't be any fruit. But your word does not return void. So, Lord, we are awaiting your meal, your food from heaven to feed us, your light to shine our way, your truth to protect us from error. Lord, help us in these moments. We thank you for this letter that you've commissioned through the hand of Paul, that you have preserved through the years, that you've translated into our language that we can read here now today and come to understand. So, Lord, help us to make sense of these things. Forgive us where we have failed you, where we have known your truth and we have disregarded your truth, even where we have not known your truth and have still followed our own way. So make known to us the paths of life in this, your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This is the last sermon in this series, in this letter, for now, uh, that we will go, well, that we will cover in verses 25 through 28. The benediction that Paul here gives to them as he closes out this letter to the Thessalonians before he will in the future write to them another letter. And just for our own information, we will engage that second letter to the Thessalonians next, but we'll take a brief pause and investigate some other things before we go there. I have entitled this message, Pray, Love, Read. Maybe some of you have read that book or seen that movie with Julia Roberts, Pray, Love, Eat, or whatever it was. I didn't see it. I didn't read it. Uh, maybe you can inform me on it later, but I thought I felt in a pithy mood to give some sort of cute title but essentially, that is exactly the final exhortations that Paul gives to the church in this letter. And he does it in somewhat of a simplified way, and there's a reason for that. If you ever come across something in your Bible where Paul is just kind of briefly making mention of something, we, we need to pause and investigate whether we understand what he's assuming they understand that he's saying. If these be the words of God, then is it is extremely important that we investigate every single thing that's here that he's said? I would argue that it is. And that we would hold to that, that if these are the words of life, if, if these are things that are 
sweeter than the honey from the honeycomb, that are more valuable than gold, even much fine gold, then wouldn't we want to stop and investigate and make sure that we know what he's saying? But essentially, pray, love, read. These are the final things he gives them, and they are kind of the cyclical pattern of the Christian life. These are the kind of things that we're involved in all at the same time. These are kind of what define us as a people living a Christian life, actually. And we'll look at Acts uh, Acts chapter 2 in just a little bit, but essentially you have those same elements there as well. And when I say read, and we're going to investigate that, uh, read is being devoted to what has been written. And what has been written is the Word of God. Now, I was so thankful and amazed that our brother Nathan from Oaxaca, Mexico, preached what he preached last week from the first chapter of Second Thessalonians, uh, how to pray for the persecuted missionaries, for the suffering missionaries, or, in fact, how to pray for all brothers and sisters suffering from their, for their faith. And it was so amazing how we see in the scriptures that we don't necessarily just pray that they would get out of that, but that even in the midst of that, they would bear fruit. They would prove to be a countercultural, supernatural people that draw others in while they're suffering. Nobody wants to join people in suffering. That's unnatural and uncomfortable. But when you suffer for Christ and bear that type of fruit, you invite a curiosity, at least, that wonders how you not only endure, but how you seem to overcome those things. A big theme of life in Christ is overcoming what the world throws at us because Jesus has overcome the world. And if it's he who lives in us, well, there's no greater power in all the universe. But all that to say, praying, loving, reading, and in reading you could also say discipling or learning, are essentially the three most important aspects of devotion to God and following the way. And so this is what he gives them. In verse 25, brothers, pray for us. If you remember, if you've gone back or you can go back throughout this letter, and we saw how Paul prays for them. He mentioned in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 how he's constantly giving thanks for them. Thanks for their faith. Thanks for how they are bearing fruit in the midst of trial and persecution. Thanks for the love that they have for one another and for God. And he also mentions that he's praying in chapter 3 for their growth in love and holiness and being presented blameless at the day of the Lord. Paul is constantly praying for them, and he's making it very clear how exactly he's praying for them. And so what he says here in verse 25, he kind of turns that around and asks them to pray for him. And what we saw last week was how you do that. When 
I got to spend a good amount of time with Nathan that Saturday before he came to speak to us on Sunday, it was made very clear that the needs weren't financial, but there was a desperate and great need for prayer. And not just like, hey, you know, can you pray for me tomorrow, brother? You know, I, I need that. No. Pray for the work of the ministry of the training up in godliness, of the presentation of the gospel, of, of the propagating of healthy churches in an area like Oaxaca, Mexico. And be devoted to that, please. Invest in that. Write a check with time and consistency to pray for that, because we need that. They need that. And, and Paul is not assuming ever that he is the great, awesome apostle that everyone should bow down to and, and learn from. He is not ever acting like that, although he makes mention that he could call for more adoration, call for more love, call for more support as an apostle in Christ. But in fact, that is not how people in Christ act. He recognizes that the power to carry out his mission to carry out his work comes from the Lord, and so we must implore him to help in those efforts. And when you get, when we get to 2 Thessalonians, what did we see? Well, we saw in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1 how Paul is praying for the persecuted and in turn how they are to pray for him that uh, God may make them worthy of the calling and may fulfill every resolve for, for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Calling on high the Lord to do only what he can do in the midst of such circumstances. So it seems like a simple, small phrase in verse 25 to say, brothers, pray for us. But Paul knows and Paul has a personal, intimate relationship with this church. So when they go to pray for him, they know how. They know his needs, they know his weaknesses, they know his sinful proclivities, they know his demeanor, they know the work, they know the atmosphere, they know it all. They are intimately acquainted with this, this missionary brother, father of theirs. And I would argue that while the IMB, the, the missionary service of all Southern Baptists, has done great things, awesome things, one thing that they have recognized that they have failed in is connecting the missionary with the church. In, in essence, there is some fault in outsourcing missions to an organization that is not the local church. We are the sending unit for the gospel to the nations. We need to be personally acquainted with these people who go. They need to be commissioned by a group of believers who know their life, who know their faith, who know their walk, who, who are seeing and confirming their calling and send them with full support, namely in prayer. We have to know these people. And, and they, since 
the IMB has recognized their shortcomings in that. They've tried to connect people on the field with, with churches now, and there's still a disconnect. We didn't send them. I didn't send them. One thing that I, uh, that I hope in the future that we get to see is sending people from this church. Certainly, we're going to send you to your neighborhood, to your neighbor, to your family all the time, 24-7. But for this church to see and to fully support, namely through prayer, maybe even financially, to send people to a people that need the gospel and a healthy church. I want to see that. I want to know that. I want to watch God do that. I want to be a part of a, a work that takes place across the world for his glory that we are intimately acquainted with, that we are praying so faithfully and fruitfully for. You know, one of the beautiful things that I got to witness last week is, is Brother Jeff Parks uh, has been working with Nathan for so long, and Nathan has, has been to Cornerstone Baptist so much that it, it's second nature for them on how to pray, how to receive, how to comfort, how to give to that ministry. It's a family. And every time he comes back, there's a reunion, and there's, a, there's an understanding of where he's at and who he's with and what he's doing. I want to see that. I want to know that with people. And what kind of an encouragement and a blessing will that be for you? You know, if you go into Acts, I believe, chapter 11, and you find this beautiful thing that happens where I believe it's, it's the Bereans that become, uh, or I forget, don't quote me, anyways, they become acquainted, this group of people become acquainted with Paul. There's been a healthy church established, and they know that Paul is leaving, and he's going to go out, and he's going <coughs> to go to these other churches, and Paul's communicating to them about the work that he's doing, and then eventually when Paul gets to another church, he gets there with uh, support from that church that he was intimately acquainted with. And what it ends up being is a Gentile church that is sending funds to a persecuted, uh, natively Jewish church. And, and they've done that because they've had this intimate connection with the missionaries. And so they've They've taken part in a biblical work. And it's recorded for all time. That beautiful transaction, that beautiful relationship that they have undertaken. So for him just to say, brothers, pray for us, signifies a very healthy, intimate relationship between them. Next. Verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Spurgeon says, a hearty handshake in our Western context will suffice where a kiss in the ancient Near Eastern context would suffice. A hearty handshake, a warm hug. The essence is not in the mode, or the message is not in the the mode necessarily. It is in communicating love in the most appropriate and meaningful way where you are. He, he never, ever 
ceases to mention to any of the churches that he writes to how and if they are being characterized by love. And in fact, John picks up on that, right? In 1 John, we'll look into that in a minute, but God is love. If, if we are not expressing that, if we don't feel that with our brothers, then John says, you're not of God. <coughs> we have to be experiencing that. You, you should find the most comforting presence when you get together with your brothers and sisters in the church. That can be on a Sunday morning, or that could be when you see them throughout the week, <coughs> but that should be one of the most comforting things for you. To engage those brothers and sisters and to recognize each other with this handshake or this hug or this holy kiss that signifies how much you do love them. If you or if a visitor were to walk into our church and see that we don't love each other, it would be very obvious because our coldness would be seen in our outward affections towards one another. You know, oftentimes we're supposed to start worship at 1030, right? And we don't on purpose because I, I love to look out and watch you greeting one another. And I, and I love the testimonies that I've gotten from people that have come in to visit and how they watch you greet each other. So we'll start 10 minutes late. I don't care. You are proclaiming the gospel in the way that you are showing love to one another. They will know you by your love for one another. Back in chapter 3, Paul is asking the Lord, or declaring that this is what he's asking him, <coughs> blessing them. Back in chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Why? So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. <laughs> in other words, when Jesus comes back, you will be in heaven with your brothers and sisters. Do you love them? Is it going to be possible to approach Jesus as he is approaching the world in victory to set everything right, to bring a new heavens and a new earth and new Jerusalem down from heaven, uh, are you able to show up at that meeting, that celebration, having hated everybody that you ever worshipped with? No. You show up together with each other, for each other. This whole letter, essentially, and the, and the eternal perspective that Paul has and gives through this letter is so that we would take these truths, take these words, and encourage one another. If you don't love your brother and sister, uh, forget the handshakes and the kisses, you won't give them the word. You won't give them the truth. And Paul encourages them to do that. 
to give them his truth and his word. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's not only seen in the outward expression. It's seen in the importance we place on others' needs before our own, right? And again, the example is Christ. You can go to Philippians 2 and find that. That he is displaying to us what it means to glorify God in our lives, in our behaviors, in our hearts. And I would even argue this. If you have not been born again, if there is no new heart, if you are not a new creation, then you will not have love for one another. You'll be stuck in your selfishness. You'll be stuck in your self-centeredness. You'll be stuck in, in thinking that the world revolves around you. Brent was telling me a story this week of something he witnessed where uh, a, a lady at a, a splash pad was instead of watching her children, was taking selfies of herself, right? Correct? <laughs> okay. Now, what do you see in that? What do you, what do you, you, you see that the world is about her. Her needs, her popularity or whatever, her gain. Her eyes aren't able to be focused on others, on the world. There is no love for one another because perhaps... She hasn't known how Jesus loved her. If you meditate on how Christ loves you, you will love others. And listen, we have to grow in that. Because we still fight the flesh that is selfish, that is offended easily, that is undesirous of, of engaging in a messy relationship. But in that, we are immature in our beliefs and are looking to Jesus who loves messy people with messy lives in hopes and in the goal that his love and truth will transform those lives for the better. If you desire your brother's good and growth, we will love them better and better. Now I want you to follow a, a chain of thought with me here. I'm going to start in Matthew 22. I'm going to end in 1 John 4. So follow this with me. Uh, Matthew 22, 35 through 40. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. They're asking Jesus a question here. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
Piggybacking on that, Paul says in Galatians 5, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, when you go through uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you're uh, finding that the law is written down and made clear and, and Israel is supposed to be starting to follow this law, what Israel is missing from day one is that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. That they are obviously an unholy people. That God is not like them in that sense. That the law proclaims a holiness that Israel cannot live up to. But what he desires for them is to intimately know his love as he dwells with them as his chosen people and exercises grace and mercy and at times discipline when they need it. And in other words, he loves them. And what is he wanting his people to be characterized by? Well, Jesus makes it pretty clear. Paul makes it pretty clear. We're supposed to love, especially vertically to God, but also horizontally. Take the Ten Commandments, the first four, are about our relationship to God. The last six are about our relationship to one another. So when they sum up the whole law in these two commandments, love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself, that's it. We will be devoted to them. God, as Lord, dictates what our lives look like and what we do and what goodness is, because he is goodness, he is holiness. And so we respond to that in love. We don't obey him just because uh, he's some sort of slave master or something. We obey him out of love, knowing that he wants complete good for us. If my children understood how much I love them, they would obey me more. Because they would know that the things I tell them, although I'm not without fault, the things I tell them are for their good. And if we understand more the love of God, then we'll understand His commandments are for our good because He loves us. And we'll, we, we will love our neighbor as ourselves. We will love especially his church that he purchased in his blood. Why, why do these things happen? Why do we do all this? Why is this commanded? Why does love seem to be the banner over the law even? Because 1 John chapter 4, 19-21, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. You know, when you become a Christian, and maybe you've had this experience before you were a Christian, you, you look at the church and you think, okay, hypocrites, I don't want to be a part of that. They... they Assumed to believe in a God who loves and all this sort of stuff, but they are just, you know, wicked, messy people. After you become a Christian and you understand how God has loved you and your mess and your hypocrisy and your disobedience and your craziness, then you realize what the church is. And, and people throughout the centuries have labeled it many different things, hospitals for sinners and all that sort of stuff. What's what you have? You have the embodiment of people who are already but not yet. Already justified in Jesus, 
promised glorification. They will be perfect, but not yet. And so that's why there's so much instruction from Paul on how to relate to one another. That's why six of the, of the Ten Commandments have to deal with how we treat our neighbors, even in just a legalistic sense, how we behave. And you know the book of Hosea. And God displays how he loves Israel by showing uh, Hosea that in his own life. Marry a prostitute, Hosea. If he can love us like that, then we have a lot of room to grow in how we express that love to one another. Huge part of our lives as Christians. Huge, huge part. Next, verse 27. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. That's actually a really strong statement from Paul. He's binding them with God as witness to read this letter. On the surface, you may think that sounds kind of proud. You think your letter's that important? Yeah, Paul actually does think his letter's that important. Because through some mystery of revelation, the apostles got the word of God, the expressed clear word of God to, to communicate to his people. And so it's not that he's proud, it's that he understands what he is sharing is truth from the Lord. Therefore, you must read this. And he says that in several other letters as well. They, they expect these things to be read, to be listened to, to be obeyed. Because <clears throat> Paul understands he's not writing with just his own pen. He's writing as filled with the Spirit and called by God to be an apostle or a messenger. And he personally binds them here in verse 27 before God to read to everyone. And we know this letter has a lot to do with the faint-hearted and the idle and the weak in their faith and those who have been uh, miscommunicated to about the second coming. He's going to make sure that they hear the truth. You must read this to everyone. This is exactly what happened in the days leading up to uh, the Reformation is the, the word of God was finally in its true form, in its truth, in all its words, read and given to the people, when before it wasn't. It was held captive by illegitimate religious leaders of the day and used to further their advancement of their own kingdom and their own wealth and their own power. But Paul, along with all the other apostles, along with Jesus, by the way, in John 17, is making sure that everyone hears it. It's an instruction and an encouragement for all. And therefore, in verse 27, this statement shows us that Paul has written this with his own hand. Because he's communicating in the first person, I put you under oath to have this read. 
Sometimes he dictates to somebody as they write it down. But Paul is saying here, I am telling you. He went, they don't do that in the ancient world if they're not the one writing it. <clears throat> I'm telling you, read it. Because they're going to have to use those words to encourage one another, right? If you go back to chapter 4 and verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. If it's not read to them, then how are they going to be encouraged? 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, Peter recognizes something about the letters of Paul. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and a peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, we would say, amen, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter is speaking of Paul's letters as akin or in the same category as Scripture. That would include everything they have in the Old Testament, and that would include the letters that they have deemed Scripture from an apostle's hand that have come to them at this point. So is it important? Supremely important. And it's not only because Paul himself binds them under oath to read it. It's because, because they are the words of God, the scripture. And we'll get into that in a second of how God uses these human authors and their human personalities to communicate his truth and his word by his power. He doesn't turn them into robots or into typewriters for himself. But he communicates through them through expressing love horizontally as he is giving them truth and love vertically. A reading, learning people. That's what God's people are. In Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Right? So there's all those aspects. And the, the first thing they mention there is the apostles' teaching, which Paul's an apostle. They're devoted to hearing not about what Paul has to say, but what God has to say through them. They're devoted to that. They want to know that. They want to hear that. I was just with some pastors Friday morning, and we were speaking of the, the different contexts that we've experienced, especially in, in, in foreign contexts, when you know, you, you, you speak and you, you give a presentation and then you're done and they say, well, we're not done. We're not, we're not done. We want more. These people that walk five miles through jungle, and this is no exaggeration. They walk five miles through jungle and stuff that isn't roads just to get to a place where somebody has a Bible that can speak to them and then you're going to give them 30 minutes? No, no. We've invested a lot more than that already. You're going to give us all day. Because why? They want the word. They know it's life. They know it's good. They know it's God. And they want to know him. So they want it read. And they don't want to leave any page unturned. 